Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Longbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This is the second week of Spooktober, and we are going to be discussing a series that I picked this week. We're going to be talking about the 2017 Image Comics series, Underwinter. Um, This is the first of free Underwinter comics. Uh, The creator is... Ray Fox. This is one of those comics that is primarily like spearheaded by one person. Uh, Fox does both the story and illustration. He's the all-around creator. And then the couple of her names we have credited are Steve Wands as the letterer and Danny V is credited as a costume consultant. And yeah, this is a six-issue miniseries about five years old now. I read it month to month as it was coming out originally all those years ago. I have to have read it at least four or five times, and it gets better literally every single time I read it. Uh, it's really good. It's on Hoopla, right? Yes. Get a library card. Get it Hoopla. Yeah, uh, thank you for mentioning that. Even though like Image doesn't have an app like Marvel or DC does, you can read this for free with a library card. So, yeah, do it. It's good. It's worth it. And it still, like, sends some money to the creators. It's not... Yeah. Yeah. And then go buy it, if you liked it. You will want to buy it. The subtitle for the trade and the title for this arc of Underwinter is Symphony. So, you know, music theme. Our opening pages are very evocative and immediately dive deep into what it's going to be aesthetically and thematically, although it's sort of like wetting your appetite without the full context for what's going to be coming. But essentially, the opening visuals of this book are that we have a naked man wearing nothing but a blindfold who's essentially being played by the strings of an instrument, I guess like a violin or a viola. Yeah being played like he's a violin. This immediately reminded me of it. the TV show Hannibal. There's an episode where one of the serial killers kills people and then treats their throats so that he can play them with a bowstring. Just about the most painful, horrible thing I can imagine. Well, I mean, they're dead. <laughs> but this man ain't. <laughs> yeah, no, no. In Hannibal, they're very thoroughly dead by the time he manages to get their throats to, like, chemically harden. fucking gross but yeah just right off the bat because this is an auditory medium you know it's hard to describe why an image is so immediately striking i guess i'll go ahead and say up top the art in this is entirely watercolor painting well there's some stuff that honestly looks it's mixed media most of it's watercolor there's places where i'm like is that crayon And there's places where, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, like, there are definitely, like, parts that also look like pen and ink and, like, almost crownish. And you're right, it isn't literally all watercolor. But it's, most of it's watercolor, and it's gorgeous and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, it's like, as someone who did art all through grade school, the hardest thing to me ever the entire time was watercolor like of all types of art that i look at and go 
you're ridiculously talented if you can do anything with it. Watercolor is like top of the list for me. So I'm looking at this entire book on a craft level, like, this is so fucking hard to be this fucking good. And also, it's just like, I think it goes a long way in establishing the tone and atmosphere where this sort of horror is largely about, like, things not being quite right and about the characters dissociating and, like, losing their grip on reality. And so the visuals can feel like they're, I guess, like, sanity dripping away like the water. I'm trying to think of, like, how to describe it. Like, it sort of shifts in intensity and detail across scenes, and it's always just really lovely. Yeah, the art is somehow both really detailed and specific and also very abstract in the way it depicts almost everything and everyone. Um... Yeah, like, for example, in this opening image, the um, naked man who's being played like a bow, his abs and his nipples are very detailed, but then his hands are just these blurred smudges above his head, where you can tell what they're meant to be, but, like, that will literally just, on a single page, it will shift, and it's clearly very purposeful, it's not like, it's it's not like Ray Fox can't paint hands, this isn't a Rob Liefeld situation. <laughs> these painted abstracted hands are better than any attempt Rob Liefeld has ever made at fully depicting hands. Yeah, yeah, I, I, the surrealism of the art and the surrealism of the story go hand in hand. It's definitely very much like the medium is the message. Yeah, it's like, it feels a lot of the time like Fox just really knows like, which specific details to own in on to sort of pull your focus on that specific aspect. Like, the very first panel over top before the naked man on page one is just a close-up on the violin. You can see how the strings are, like, pulled taut across the instrument itself. I'm immediately thinking about, like, tugging and the constriction. And so then when I look at the image below, it just adds to that sense of the strings tugging at this man's skin and it's evocative in the worst way which is to say the best way but ugh, gross best way for a horror comic which this is this will be the scariest thing we read this month i think so no easily easily i know my picks they, they don't come close listeners i didn't and i suppose i still don't know a whole lot about like Chris's specific fears, so I didn't know until he was telling me after reading it how much thematically this is exactly what scares him. So I inadvertently picked exactly the right thing. I messaged you right after reading saying, um, loss of identity to addiction, hedonism, and, like, becoming lost in, like, artistic creativity and losing sight of all else are the exact themes that for some reason always freak me out whenever I encounter something with them in it. Yeah. Um, in addition to the excellent arts, a lot of the like narration is really affecting, and I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of lines from these first pages just as an example of what his prose is like, and also because they sort of introduce themes that we're going to come back to throughout the book. The opening narration from this character, this man who we don't have any context for who he is, is, I keep having these nightmares, and I think I know why. 
candles guttering in the deep, yawning dark, throwing a light across the strings or the scroll, across the lacquered body, blind, held close, the bow drawn across to sound the first note, a slash of silk brushing slowly over skin, like the frills of a passing deep-sea fish, a scent of limes. I get to thinking that this is the worst part, the part just before it starts to hurt. And then... dot dot dot. And that's like all of the narration across page one, and it's just fucking good! <laughs> I just really like it, like, specifically... The vocabulary is really great in a way that reminds me of, like, a great novel or a great poem where, you know, there's just some great descriptors of, say, the yawning dark or the use of the word lacquered. It's like the vocabulary is really nice without feeling overdone in purple prose. It's evocative, yeah. Yeah, I especially love, like, the frills of a passing deep-sea fish, a scent of limes. I'm just like, period, perfect, 100%. This bitch deserved the Nobel Literature Prize for the year. I'm so on board immediately. And then you turn the page to page two, and bitch is screaming because he is he's truly getting played. And like, there's more uh, jets of like the watercolor red for the blood across the darkness, and a bit more talk about just all the terrible things of skin and the music and. Yeah, that's sort of our two-page prologue before we dive into the main story. A pain beyond all imagining, beyond sanity. And I weep because I don't want it to end. We read such cheerful things for this podcast. We truly do. After that point in the trade, um, we get the actual like title page for issue one, just saying uh, Symphony Part 1, November... Each part is, like, progressing a month forward in time, so we're having a story that takes about six months from beginning to completion. And I suppose real quick before we dive into the full story, I will note my one complaint about the trade edition of this is that it doesn't feature any of the original covers, and I like a lot of them, and I like a lot of them better than the image they've chosen to be the cover to the trade, so... That's a minor complaint when you know that's just like how it's packaged, but I do wish that you had got to see some of the original cover art as well. That's genuinely strange thinking about it. Yeah. I don't have the singles anymore. I kind of want to rebuy them again just for the covers. I'll like pull them up on Google to show you later. But back to the story. After that opening of just a man being played like an instrument... We then zoom forward to a shot of essentially this mansion with blood red roofs. Yeah, blood red blood red roofs. Trying to pronounce that correctly, our sounds are part of what I went to speech for in elementary school. Roofs, roofs. I'm not sure. I'm honestly not sure either. Um, and again, there's a big uh, scream. Yeah, like, yeah, it's like the lettering in this book is really good. You know, like most of it, the normal conversation is just like simple, clean, you know, typical lettering. 
But like this screaming font is just like perfect horror font, like little bits of jagged lines. It's like not um, perfectly straight, I guess. It's like the letters go up and down, sort of like shakily, like a scream. Yeah. But yeah, after that, we see some people at the mansion. We have these workers essentially telling their boss, Sir, sir, it's happened again. Another one. Ink from the eyes, sir. And the, uh, nevers. And yeah, we don't really know what's happening other than that this man is being told that people are fucking leaking ink. And he says something about having six months left, maybe fewer. We will contain the damage until then. We will take the necessary measures. So we're already introducing the uh, threat of the clock winding down. And there's some sort of nebulous threat that our main characters are going to have to deal with. At which point we meet our four main characters. Uh, The first one we meet is Eleanor. And then the rest of the characters that we're going to meet in short succession are Corbin, Kendall, and Stephanie. What did you think of the characters in this book? Um, I mean, there's four of them, and it's it's they're all very specific in how they're characterized initially and the ways that they're affected by what happens to them. Um, I don't know if I have that like strong. I think they are exactly what this story needs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree <laughs> with that. Their basic character beats are Eleanor has historically been treated very badly particularly by like family growing up and as each character deals with the horror that unfolds and their personalities are warped by it Eleanor's big arc is going to be sort of like asserting more dominance in a way she never did before Kendall meanwhile is the most laid back member of the They're a quartet, I should go ahead and say. These four main characters, they are musicians who perform together as a group. And Kendall's the most laid-back, relaxed sort of character. Also, probably the most hedonistic, is that fair to say? At least initially? Initially. Yeah, like we just get lots of scenes of him sucking and fucking just... (laughs) He's got a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and they like getting busy with each other. Yeah, And part of, like, Eleanor's rise and dominance is going to be showing up and, like, starting to fuck his partners and being like, you don't join in, you just watch, I'm taking what you have now. Meanwhile, uh, Corbin is a drunk. His wife has made them get a divorce after just a long history of him lying and... You know, doing a lot of the sorts of things that people do when they are just struggling with being an alcoholic, with being an addict of some sort. So he has a very shattered home life, even compared to the rest of them, I would say. He's the Stephen King protagonist of the book. Yeah. And our final main character is Stephanie, who has a troubled home life. We get a lot of brief moments of her calling family members i think it's her sister like a sibling type of relation it's very clear that there's a strained relationship with the mother 
and we get just sort of brief little bits of context added here and there throughout the story. And I think one of the most notable things that I'd honestly forgot before coming back to read it this time is that Stephanie is a trans woman who clearly has had a fraught relationship with her mother with regards to transition. Yeah, very much so. That was, I, when I was reading, I was like, oh, okay, that's why there's the, the issues of the family. So yeah, we meet our four main characters. It's very clear that they have a lot of tension within themselves, like not just in their own personal lives, but they also clash with their own personalities. Largely Stephanie taking things a lot more seriously than she thinks Kendall does. Although to be fair to Kendall, he does put in the work. He's just more lackadaisical. But it's Kendall who gets them a gig. I'm just going to read some direct lines. Good news. Solid money. I was out at the star. Got tapped through Barney. You remember Barney? Set this butler on me. Has this great setup. Very rich. Kinda weird. We play blindfolded. Some kind of billionaire sex party. They saw it in a movie. Want to be those people. We're set dressing and the soundtrack. A nice string quartet. Never mind. We play the pieces from memory. But I know we can do it. A lot of money. We're gonna make them happy. They're gonna want us back once a month. And... That's what happens. They are going to be a quartet playing monthly at this mansion. Uh, the same mansion we got a brief sight of with the blood-curdling scream mere pages before. It is sadly not a billionaire sex party. It's not that. It is It is equally weird, if not more so weird. <laughs> but it's, it's weirder and somehow both more and less disturbing. Yeah. But later in the book, at some point, they cite the figure that each time they do it, each individual member of the quartet gets paid 10k each. So we're talking incredibly set levels of money for one performance of like a couple of hours worth of music. And yeah, when they first travel there the first time, they meet Maranatha who we don't really get a lot of information about, but seems to more or less be the one in charge here of whatever shady, mysterious shit is going on. Yeah, he's the boss from earlier. Yeah, and he's very insistent about the parameters of what they're going to be doing. Um, basically says, like, we have expectations that are very specific. Our staff will even be dressing you into the clothes that we want you to be wearing. Everything has to be exactly in the proper place. And remember, when you're playing, you will play blindfolded. Do not take them off. Do not look. Whatever you do, do not look. You know, normal stuff. Well, it could be a rich person with his dick out. There will be dicks out. I don't know about rich people. I don't know that I would call them people, either. <laughs> Is it them? I thought there was just one. Yeah, I guess the one. There will be a dick out. We're getting a couple pages ahead of ourselves. But the first scene of them playing together is an example of what you mentioned earlier of a bit of like the change in media. These pages are very heavily inked. Um, what do you think of Fox's artwork when it comes to when it comes to depicting the act of, like, playing music. 
well, in this case, the thing that catches me the most is the the heavy inks around them, like, because they're blind and they can't see, so of course, like, it's just the four, and it immediately... The thing about this page that works the best for me is, with all the black inks around them, and then the figures in very stark, like, essentially white or red, um, of course it's a blood red that they are dressed in, mostly, it isolates them very specifically, and it's shows the absolute focus that they have in this scene on the music and the way it's like essentially it's it's almost like it's being channeled through them like we have coming mostly off of some of the instruments and stuff as like lighter parts of um where like the ink isn't as heavy which in in you know i keep picking superhero comics and a superhero comic would be like energy or something like it, you can see the focus and the drive, and then the inks that are actually forming their bodies and forming the instruments are very, like, sketchy and scratchy lines. It's very Bilsenkevich. Yeah, that's an apt comparison. Which is one hell of a compliment. Yeah. And there's also, like, a few points throughout where, like, the way that profiles are drawn in scenes like this feel almost, like, mythological to me. Of just, like, these blindfolded figures and, like, the energy emanating off of them. That's actually a really good point. I um I mentioned in relation to well I guess the next page I mentioned Egyptian gods earlier, but also some of the ways that um the faces are drawn here is reminiscent of like old Egyptian paintings and the way that they drew silhouettes. Yeah, like the way the profiles are done, it's like specifically on Eleanor and Stephanie. Yeah, it's very flat and trying to decide if that's the right word that i mean it's like flat in a complimentary way yeah like i look at it and it is reminiscent of like the 2d you know flat surface sort of drawing on say a temple you know of just like really old school depictions of action where like the characters specifically really aren't like looking the reader head on like they're turned to the side and, you know, the blindfolds are keeping all the eyes out of shot. So they're very much, like, separate from the audience, separate from the rest of the world with just, you know, the mass of black ink that we've mentioned already. Well, and then the scratchiness of the ink still gives a sense of motion. Like, it's a very deliberate choice to have the, um, the inking and the way it's drawn be so scratchy and, like, a little bit all over the place, but in a very, like controlled in specific way yeah yeah the decision with the line work and the way that motion is conveyed i agree is really nice and the issue ends with one of the four it's uh corbin having his blindfold slip a little bit and i'll quote him and my blindfold slips and i see the audience and i close my eyes tight and i play on and that is the narration over top of the single panel splash page, final page to issue one, which had me fully shook as hell the first time I ever read this. One of my most shocked moments by like a single page of a comic I've ever experienced where we're- Spoilers for Underwinter, by the way. Yeah. This is a spoiler podcast, as always. We won't be able to talk about this comic without talking about this. 
I think I think I used to try to say spoiler warning at the top of episodes, and then I started forgetting to because it's just so inherent to what we do. If you're gonna click on like we're talking about this, then expect we're talking. Normally, it's like we're talking about this twenty-year-old comic. <laughs> yeah, y'all have had time. Either read it first or listen and then be like, oh, I do want to read that, actually. If you don't want spoilers, pause the episode, load up Hoopla, get the comic on Hoopla, read through at least the first issue. Y'all bitches back yet? Good. So you now know from personal experience that we're seeing what Corden sees and the audience is this massive... Like, taller than a normal human, because we see Maranfa for scale in the background. Massively tall, naked man, cock and balls out, except the man has a bird neck and head. Um, I would say a stork, probably. I don't know birds. Looks like a stork. Yeah, I was trying to search for, like, the right bird, and I'll go with stork, too. It's like entirely white plumage with a really long pointed yellow beak and he's got a semi he has a semi and this page is why whenever i think of underwinter what do i think of i think a fucking bird cock <laughs> just straight up fucking bird cock hanging out there just to shock you and give you a little hey. a little sense that there's some weird shit coming your way next month what's up I now need desperately <laughs> talking about sorry. <laughs> um <laughs> that was the thing I was doing on podcast. Uh am I spelling stork correctly? S T O R K. Yeah. Fuff. Interesting. Nice. So my immediate thought when I see a human being with an animal head is, oh, what about Egyptian gods? They mostly did that. So I just now um, live on this podcast, googled which ones have a stork head, and I had Thoth. Thoth was, if I am remembering my Egyptian mythology correctly, um, basically like the god of wisdom. So I actually don't think this really plays into this book at all. <laughs> I was like, maybe this will make me go, oh my god, it's some ha- some like loose depiction of this, but no, I don't think so. Yeah, like I'm sure, you know, like if you knew a bunch about mythology and thought about it a bit you could be you know you could like draw whatever lines came to mind but i don't know that this is necessarily based on any specific figure intentionally i think this is uh richard fox thinks birds are creepy these birds are creepy (laughs) this is a creepy bird i am not normally on the creepy bird train it's creepy bird yeah and like he does a good job of getting like that creepy bird eye Because, you know, when a bird looks at you, it's just like, you creepy little bitch. And, yeah, this naked, bird-headed man with his cock out is just staring right at the reader and just daring you, like, you're going to read my book. Pick up issue number two next week or next month. But, yeah, just of all the ways for a fucking comic book to end and have a cliffhanger... I have never seen another fucking birdcock moment. <laughs> I can't think of anything else with birdcock in it. But yeah, yeah, it it shook me. Maybe I'm obsessing too much. It shook me. I had no idea what I was in for. This is officially a dinosaur comic. Yeah, yeah. There's a bird. It this counts. Is, this is by default, I think, maybe the best dinosaur comic. I don't know. Listeners, write in with dinosaur comics you think are better than Underwinter. 
There won't be a lot, but there are some of her good ones. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know that I feel like we need to hit like every scene super beat by beat. You know, I feel You should read it. It's an experience. Yeah, I feel like we can go sort of just like freeformish, hit whatever points we each were really into. There's a lot of scenery throughout, largely of like connective tissue between conversations where we'll have narration over top of nature imagery, say like when they're driving to the gig and such. And we get a lot of depictions of just like these nice Christmassy pointy evergreen trees in the watercolor. And they're really pretty and also sort of, I think, contrast against the weirdness and that it both sort of shows like, Here's the natural world that's at stake. And it also sort of makes the main events all the more realer and more unhinged in contrast. Yeah, they get really unhinged. Yeah, I guess I'll turn to you. What aspect would you like to talk about next? Okay, I need to talk about this page. This one with uh, Kendall and Mar- Maranatha. Uh, no, that's Corbin. Yeah, yeah, you're right. My Half bad. his face is blindfolded, so it's very hard to tell. Con- I-, I-, I read if you read the previous page so when they all come back having we get these little interludes with them after this first month where we see the start of like the way they're being affected for example stephanie is really happy because she can make rent for the first time kendall is indulging his hedonistic urges with his boyfriend and girlfriend who just seem to exist to have sex with whoever the plot says they need to have sex with both Kendall and whoever shows up at the apartment. Yeah. And Corbin has, well, he has, first he has, he's having nightmares about what he saw. There's a really evocative, horrifying page of him seeing, like, it's both, like, the the naked male form, but without a head, and the bird head sort of separately being seen with, like, a lot of watercolor with, like, inking over the top of it. Yeah, it's, like, all very fractured, and like glass yeah glass is going to be a major visual motif in this book where you know it's kind of an obvious metaphor of like sanity is fracturing broken glass broken mirror sort of thing and it really works you know like it looks really good in the watercolor and it just you know the metaphor works of just them losing their grip on everything also, like, the the mediums, because watercolor is, like, a very soft, um, light touch, and then when you put the inks over it, you're adding, like, all of these jagged lines to something that, like, even when you're doing, like, a hard line in a watercolor, it's, it's still, like, very soft, and it's... I need a better vocabulary for that one. I know what you mean, though, yeah, like... There's because... always a gradient to watercolor. Yeah, like, because it's literally, you know water it's never gonna look yeah it's never gonna look hard in the way that like certain other like artistic media are going to so like introducing inks and pencils on top of that sort of does interesting things texture wise um so he has this just absolutely insane nightmare and eleanor buys herself some new lingerie yeah eleanor's sexification begins We've got a lot of narration of, like, news reports that Eleanor's listened to. We had some in the first issue as well. Um, and it's it's basically, like, if, what if somebody else is, like, 
it's like they're talking about car accidents and stuff and it's essentially very fatalistic and she's giving in to like nihilism as well um but when they come back how the hell do you say his name mana there's too many a's maranafa i think maranafa yeah the old guy he somehow knows that corbin saw the freaky naked but naked bird man and well he's, he's saying that like you know that he can't unsee it and that there's go it's going to affect him he has to like still keep playing and they have to keep doing this because they just need to which like the implication is if they don't like their playing is keeping this thing trapped i would say and unable to inflict itself on the rest of the world yeah like a lot of the vague declarations we get from maranatha throughout are along the lines that their playing pushes it back and that its ascendancy is like inevitable but they're still going to do what they can to push it off for as long as they can and somehow playing this music is helping to keep back this destructive force which i suppose should also note before i forget to note it that the figure that we see is like the naked bird man isn't necessarily what it definitively is like it's established that this horror can be seen in different ways and like i believe at one point maranatha is like i wonder how it appeared to them so there's a sense that it's this sort of formless evil that can take on different appearances depending on the viewer very lovecraftian yeah this has big lovecraft vibes in like the good ways not in the racist ways in the good ways of existential horror existential horror and any of the themes and concepts and lovecraftian work have been done better by less horrendous people since he died and this is one example of that yeah exactly but the thing about this page where maranafra is whispering this to corbin and letting him know is he's i think in in the context of the in the real the world that the comic is in he is just holding the violin that he's about to start playing but the way it is painted he is the violin so like the bottom of the violin is underneath his chest and we're seeing through the violin to be able to see his face and his reaction and then the top the head the like stick thing on the i don't know violin name things i did violin in elementary school i do not remember a thing about it the top of it where you have the bit where you tune like the strings where the strings attach at the very top is coming out of his head and so not only is he playing the violin but he is a violin being played by maranafra yeah the visual symbolism is on point and it looks gorgeous it's really cool and also eerie just like fucking instrument jutting out of this man's head and in the context of what we saw earlier incredibly horrific with that initial part the first issue where someone is being played like a musical instrument yeah i'll also note an aspect that really sticks out to me about this specific page is we have all of this watercolor on uh, corbin slash the instrument that he is holding slash becoming we have maranatha putting a hand on his shoulder as he's talking to him and maranatha is pretty much just outline done in either literal crown or in some sort of i think he's just pencils 
Yeah, I guess pencil. It's like it's very rough and a bit bumpy in a good way. Yeah, big the piece of paper that the actual art was done on was. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, But point being that like Maranatha doesn't have any watercolor detailing on him the way that a lot of uh, Corbin has like his blindfold and he has, you know, like some painting for his skin and then like a lot on the actual instrument. Whereas Maranatha is largely just this purely outline stark white of the blank page for his skin. He's like very phantomy, phantasmic, fan. He's weirdly in some ways he's the most detailed character because he is by far the most line work done. But he doesn't have a skin tone. He doesn't have, like, any coloration to him at all. It's like, the way in which he's rendered is so starkly different from the rest of the characters that it sets him apart. And he's sort of, he's this interesting contrasted figure because it's like, on one side, we have the four main characters. And then we have Maranatha as, like, a separate entity as, like, a separate entity with his own agenda. And then we have, like, the mysterious evil. But, like, Maranatha isn't, like, allied with it, you know? Like, he wants to do what he can to stop it. But he also isn't very forthcoming, for the most part, with the musicians. So... I would not have signed on to face a Lovecraftian entity by playing violin at it, so I understand why he's keeping it down low. Yeah, there's a sense that, like most of the people he has enlisted to help in this endeavor, have died and or, like, lost sanity beforehand, and that his war against it has sort of, like, lasted unusually long for anyone who's encountered this beast— And he sort of takes on an otherworldly aspect himself by just nature of seeming to hold on to his sanity for longer than the rest do. Or at least functioning. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't make a declaration about the state of his sanity. It might be that he, because he doesn't interact with it, he brings the people to actually engage with it. He's somehow, that's partially protecting him. He's like a facilitator. He's never actually playing with them. Yeah. But yeah, he tells uh, Corbin that he knows that Corbin knows that there's something wrong. And so we're going to get like some conversations throughout between the two of them where he'll explain some of what's happening to Corbin. Corbin will have a bit more of an idea than the others, although it is still like vague. Yeah, it's very abstracted and like piecemeal and... I think Fox does the smart thing of not trying to do too much concrete lore and just letting the pretty pictures and the thematic horror really just be the center of it as opposed to getting bogged down and trying to say too much too explicitly. The second time they play, you really start to see the way that they've been affected. Um, For example, Eleanor heads over as we've already established heads over to Kendall's and just sort of takes his boyfriend and girlfriend away from him like just in front of him yeah just starts kissing up on him is just fully like mine now and yeah it's just like showing a sort of assertiveness that she never had and yeah I guess 
fucking taking away his ability to be the one indulging in pleasure. You know, he's usually the hedonistic one and he sort of becomes another voice of reason comparatively compared to some of the others as it goes on where he knows stuff's wrong and he's just sort of trotting along and clearly isn't happy and seems like the most comparatively level-headed compared to, I think, Eleanor is the one who, out of all of them, really loses it the most. Yeah, Eleanor just fully loses her mind almost immediately. Yeah. She holds on longer than Corbin does, and Corbin is already in a state when the comic starts. And he's the one who actually sees the thing. Yeah, Corbin is sort of consistent in that he opens the story as a fractured, unwell mess because of his alcoholism and his divorce and, like, losing his kids to the divorce and his personal problems and drug use. And, you know, then he sees the creature and he's still suffering from nightmares and all these horrible things. But because he's already so fucked up mentally... In a way, he's the most consistent and grounded, even though the last thing I would actually call him is grounded. Like, he seems to go... I don't want to necessarily say that he doesn't undergo any change. Like, I like his scenes detailing his past and his motivations and stuff. But I think at least a less dramatic change than the likes of Eleanor. Yeah. Meanwhile, Stephanie uh, mostly just becomes, like, angrier. And um, she... She's out with, I believe, her brother. Yeah. Um, And there's, like, two people who are fighting. I think, yeah, they're at a bar. And there's a bar fight happening. And she watches it and is, like, really enjoying the violence. And it looks like an incredibly violent bar fight. Like, there's blood going places. It's, It's another case where it's... What? he even used to get those scratchy lines because it looks a lot like the water i guess the watercolor somehow watercolor pencils maybe i'm not sure yeah to get these really like scratchy um violent motion lines in this fight it's really good like we have this shot of uh, like the man is just like really hammering down on the other one where like one has been sent down to the ground and we get like the motion of him punching down and just like this blood splatter like this is clearly a violent violent fight and stephanie's just like fuck yeah um very uh like evil smirk face and she appears to be weeping blood uh meanwhile eleanor while getting presumably railed from two sides starts leaking black liquid out of her mouth nose and eyes, and presumably, as we said earlier in the comic, nevers. This is the the ink effect again, which is how she's affected. Yeah, and across a lot of these images, I'll also just briefly note, like, they'll be enclosed, surrounded by more glass shards to just, like, emphasize them breaking like surrounding the heads and the faces it'll just be like breaking glass and like corbin will even be throwing up glass yeah he actually vomits glass which it's hard to imagine something more painful than vomits in glass yeah another specific image a less horrific on the face one both implications that i want to briefly mention just because i really like the specific page is 
when Corbin is still the only one who has seen the creature, and so, like, he's, you know, descending into nightmares, there's this page of a lime tree where it's four limes on the ground at the base of the tree, and there's, like, black panel bar around, or I suppose I should say, separating one lime from the other free sort of signifying uh, Corbin's separation from the rest of the characters already, which was just really evocative and really pretty too, just like, you know, like the lovely greens. Although, of course, the rest of the limes are also gonna get real fucked up. Everyone gets real fucked up. But it was just like an interesting page showing like already the separation of one from the group upon more directly already seeing what they're up against. Well, there's the story of, I think it's by enough for his childhood where he would put, like, f- fruit, like, limes or bananas next to the apple trees and would imagine the fruit somehow, like, t- being taken in and, like, you know, rotting and becoming part of the earth that feeds the tree and then would, like, ask his mother if the apples that they pulled from the tree tasted like limes. The, the sort of idea of something seeping into you is a very, like, thematic, strong point of this. The loss of identity and what you actually are to something else. An apple becoming a lime. Yeah. And, like, I really like the writing of the characters in this story as, you know, we just get flashes, largely very brief, showing their past, just little tastes of who they are and how they got here and how that relates to each individual arc. You know, like we get a scene of like, I believe it's Eleanor's parents bickering about her lack of a backbone. We get mostly fraught family stuff of various sorts of like, you know, Corbin's divorce, what I said earlier about Stephanie and her mother. I just like how it's all written, I think. I think it does a really good job of showing where each character emotionally is and why they're being affected in the ways that they are. And I think my favorite example of the writing is for Stephanie with, you know, there's everything about the violence and the rage that's very easy to understand and is justified largely with, you know, just what she's had to go through. And I really like the specific prose writing dialogue writing with like reference to the mom and everything where like there's one specific quote from the mom being like you wanted to be my daughter and just like that specific phrasing of the way that the mother would talk to her and just like that then relating to the concept of choice and you know, Stephanie's asserting herself and, like, making space for herself to be as she wants to be, which, you know, the world is shit and, you know, has been violent towards her and it makes perfect sense why she is, in turn, you know, takes some twisted joy in violence as she loses it more and more over the course of the story. Did that make sense? Yeah. Okay. I can't think of anything to add to that because you just nailed it. Yeah. (laughs) Back to Eleanor and her sucking and fucking and getting railed. A thing that I don't think we've mentioned specifically yet is that the sort of, whatever you want to call it, loss of sanity, physical manifestations of it, 
you know, like the glass and the bleeding ink, leaking ink is contagious in some way. And we see it spread. And there's this one panel of Eleanor with Kendall's boyfriend and girlfriend where like she's bleeding from her nose and eyes and everything. But we also have the other man and woman at like crotch level with the woman like looking over her shoulder toward the reader with nose and mouth and virtual entire bottom half of face smudged in the black ink. And largely it just takes on the level of like, well, the positioning is like she was probably just eating this bitch out. Yeah, and no, she, she you see that literally in a panel earlier. Yeah, just fully let me eat you out and taste all of the literal ink that is dripping out of your pussy. The more disturbing one is the um, the man is suckling at her breast, and we see in a later panel there is a tiny dot of black on Eleanor's breast. Yeah. It is leaking out of literally everything it could possibly leak out of anywhere humans produce substances it's coming out um and it's spreading i really love this is a bit later but when they show up for their final performance there's just these incredible pages of eleanor and her black dress that is like her uniform for the performances walking down the halls of the mansion bleeding you mean red dress yeah i say black or something yeah okay uh she's wearing this stark red dress which in turn makes the black ink stand out all the more and she's walking down the halls and is specifically at this point has ink from her hand and she's walking down touching the walls leaving this gigantic like horizontal black line across all the walls she touches while there's also black ink seeping from the bottom of the dress down her shoes down her legs it's just incredibly eerie um as stated a little bit earlier in the comic over an absolutely astonishing um final splash of weirdly this time it's the stork man who is like partially fused with the violin and with the planet earth no escape for them for us for anyone yeah the bird imagery is always so good with just like how stark the like white plumage is against everything else and then like the beady eyes fucking threatening creepy birds but you know the way the story is told you know there's a lot going on thematically of everything you've said earlier about like hedonism dissolution of the self etc i appreciate how much room fox leaves for the reader to sort of like pull out which individual bits speak to them the most or like which part they're thinking about during that particular read through like it's not really a story where i would say that it's simple enough to only have one strict moral to it you know it's like every time i read it there are details that i think about a bit more than i did the last time i read it or like my focus will shift to something else and it's just like that nice kind of horror where it really respects the reader's intelligence and also just gives you a lot to chew on. And there's not like one correct answer to anything. It's like how you do abstract art and make it really good. Yeah, it's I, the main like theme of this, I'd say, is like distortion of the self. Like the way everyone is affected 
Um, it's it's specific to them, and in some ways, like if you were at the beginning of the comic and you were like looking at Eleanor, for example, and like when you initially described how she like becomes more determinate in taking what she wants, that sounds like a character arc. That's a positive move for her, but the way that it happens is disturbing and horrifying and yeah it's about being changed into something monstrous yeah like none of these people are monsters at the start several of them are by the end yeah and like with eleanor it's like because of her bad past with family and relationships you know it's like even now that she's trying to be more assertive you know she doesn't have the healthy emotional social skills to do that in a way that's entirely healthy you know like a lot of it is sort of like about possession and like these people as objects and about taking from Kendall actively and like assertion as taking what someone else has and I'm not sure if I have like a great way to put that but just like a very sort of everyone is very much in their own fucked up headspace and no one is really like coming together healthily communally they're all sort of like individually falling apart even if theoretically they're together they're really not yeah like weirdly again the only person who is the he's affected in that he sort of goes from being horrified by his own addictions to being horrified by the horrible bird monster but um corbin as we'll see heading into the final issue which is after well so after they all arrive for the final performance at the end of the six months and they've all been going through this distortion of themselves and of their minds and in some ways their bodies oh yes so maranafra is was actually this horrifying shot of him i initially thought this was a different character in this one panel because he has blood red eyes and red flowing from his nose and he's in full inky darkness nosferatu looking bitch yeah it's like fully like i'm like is this like some kind of vampiric creature that he is working with i like it feels odd to introduce this in the last issue. no it, it's just him it's just whatever he's doing it he is also corrupted by this thing even if he is somehow holding it together better than everyone else has been um but he greets them and he explains that the because at this point they all know that there's some kind of fucked up thing he explains that uh, you will speak to this monster in the language of its creation and alter it before it can destroy us all, before everything and everyone you've loved dies in an utterable agony. At which point Stephanie, who, she's incredibly pissed about being set up, so she strangles him to death. Yeah, like, she kills him, but they're all going to go forward and continue with the playing anyway. There's some talk of it being, like, you know, ritualistic and, like, a ritual for holding back this evil. And they all go forth to play in this attempt to... Kill it. They're they're, they're hoping to be able to kill it. Yeah. To kill it, to succeed, to end it all. We're coming up on the climax. And essentially what happens is that we're going to have these very stark pages almost entirely red black and white and they're all going to be playing and 
it's an endurance thing partially where they play as long as they can not just physically but just again sanity wise and they just start dropping one by one like flies and the monster gets them to include starting with Eleanor where we get these horrendous panels of like the stork beak going down into her mouth to then cleave her head in two yeah it's lovely it's fucking horrifying like there's another shot later where we see like more of the beasts like full body just looking like this fucking giant monster that's ready to fucking eat any of them and yeah when we first saw it it was much more like humanoid like it was very much just like a man with stalks head and in these you can maybe we're seeing a little closer to its true form because it is increasingly just less human in proportions like part of it is that we've now gone like almost entirely to the scratchy inks because it's the musical performance with the blindfolds and we're going into that stylistic choice but the way that it's portrayed um it doesn't have any shading or any like of the details that used to mark it like we don't see this bird's dick the bird cock is gone it's time to be serious about it the bird cock is gone its fingers bend in like weird ways that like human fingers wouldn't bend and i would say for example that if i saw this by itself i'd be like that's a bad drawing of a hand but i know that fox can draw hands so this is intentionally a really fucked up weird hard to describe looking hand yeah like it's intentional like something is wrong this monster is not you know it's not adhering to reality yeah just like very twisty and able to you know just drive them fucking mad it's again that lovecraftian sort of horror of detachment from reality and at the end of the comic corbin is still playing he's the only one left everyone else has died horribly and in pain and he keeps playing and he knows and i know that when i stop i will die but i won't stop i'll never stop and we just see the sun setting behind the trees as the story ends the sun setting behind the trees with some of the lines of the watercolor being done in such a way to also evoke his face and the setting sun as his open screaming mouth well, like other lines in the pink sky are like his sunken eyes and his nose and like the seeping liquid from his eyes that effect is almost too subtle because i practically missed it <laughs> yeah i don't know if i noticed it my first time either it's like i ca- i like that it's subtle personally so that it you know also just ends on the sunsets and it's a little bit the top is still spinning at the end of inception haven't seen inception anyone who has understands that reference <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a spinning top and if it topples that means that it's reality and if it doesn't it's a dream and leonardo dicaprio spins the top but then doesn't what stops watching it because he gets distracted and the camera zooms in on the little top and it wobbles a tiny little bit but doesn't fall and then we cut to black okay and it's unclear if it was like going to fall soon or if it was just going to keep spinning forever okay one thing i'll note about this ending too that we haven't really talked about is a lot of Corbin's narration is talking about like joy and glory and it's 
almost hopeful in a way where after going through all this horrible shit, he's talking about all these lovely things in life. The music is still good. Yeah, like music is still something he loves. It's still a tool for coping and making beautiful arts and just something worth living with. And yeah, that really struck me on this rereading as like the final act of this horror story could be read largely just like very hopeful or very like it there's no sense that he can actually survive but I find it hopeful in the sense of like even against insurmountable odds and certainty for something bad he's like clutching a little bit of glory in his last moments which is about as good of a thing as he could possibly hope for you know that sort of like human stubbornness as choosing happiness until he no longer can maybe happiness isn't the right word bitches surrounded by his dead friends but he he's doing what he can there's also like a lot of abs so basically the sort of pattern that it follows after a little while is one page of watercolors that's something it's a more abstract image like the sun setting over water or um whatever this crayon drawing of a whole bunch of spheres is it's the pattern at the top of the door to the inner chamber where they do their final performance it's they don't show it a lot but they like show it towards the very beginning at some point in one of the first mansion scenes and then they do that close up there towards the end just like signaling the location of like the inner chamber where the fight is being held and it's just like all these circles and just like geometric blue oh yes okay some sort of magical sigil as well then i would assume the way that it's being depicted and it's well and in in this image as well it's Okay, you know when you, you stand between two mirrors and you go off forever in both directions? It's doing that. Yeah, it's doing the repetition. It and has... Like getting further away behind itself. Yeah, like a sense of infinity. And it also has like potentially a stained glass feel too, to just add more to the whole glass thing. Like it's not fully clear what it's made out of, but... Yeah, I think in at least, yeah, it, it's... In the earlier in the issue, it's, yeah, stained glass, looking back and, and finding the correct page. I hadn't even caught that. It's just so different looking. And it's also most of the book later. Yeah, I think I probably missed it my first read through, too. And then, of course, we get... The four limes, one of them broken in half. Yeah. A lot of visuals from earlier in the story coming back with a lot more loaded meaning. Yeah, and we end on, depending... If you catch the subtle hues in the background, either just the sunset or the screaming sunset as, and then like right before that on the prior page, we just keep zooming closer and closer in on the bird. bird yeah, the bird monster eye, just a death looking him right in the face. The eyeball itself is splattered with blood. He's been busy. He's eaten. But yeah, that's Underwinter. <laughs> Shit's good. I would not put on the back of the book part of my the review that says Lovecraft would be proud. I would maybe put a part of the review that says Lovecraftian, but Lovecraft would be proud implies that Lovecraft would enjoy this book and he wouldn't because it's not racist and it's about people who go outside. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As we said earlier, everything Lovecraft did 
less horrible people did better, Ray Fox included. But yeah, I'm glad that you enjoyed this. This has been a favorite of mine that I think about occasionally, just periodically ever since I first read it five years ago. Thank you for forcing me to read a whole bunch of X-Men comics last night to try and decompress. So that this couldn't be the last thing you did before sleeping? Yes! I normally just read a book before bed and I was like, I'm gonna have to read something else! It's like, yeah, I read Outback Air, it was fun. But, yeah, I'll, I'll take that as a successful spooky for Spooktober. And with that said, unless you have any final notes, do you want to go ahead and introduce next week's shebang? Next week, we are reading Alien the Illustrated Story. It is a comic book adaptation of the first Alien film, which if you haven't seen it, go fucking see it. I don't know what it's on. It's probably on something. Or just fucking rent it. Trust me, it's worth however much it will cost to rent it. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, recently converted Alien fan and am interested in Alien comics, but the thing is that at least half of them look like dog shit, so finding ones that look good is hard, but I've already looked at the art and this looks pretty. Well, this is Walt Simonson on art, which I'm mostly familiar with Walt Simonson's, like, work, especially, like, 80s work at Marvel Comics, and having read this, because when we decided we were doing Spooktober, I was like, well, we have to do Alien. <laughs> I've never read an Alien comic. I will find some. They're all Dark Horse, which is part of the problem. Is like, they're hard to get right now because of rights. But this one was initially published in Heavy Metal Magazine. I don't remember the issues. But honestly, just Google Alien the Illustrated Story and you'll find a version of it. I think there's... The one we're reading is the one with colors. I think there's an uncolored one that's also available in places. I don't know which would be better. Yeah, but next time, Xenomorphs should be fun. So thank you all for listening and bye. Bye.